Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Very chilly night outside, but a very warm welcome to St. Paul's. To those of you who are long-standing friends and to those of you who are visiting us for the first time. Quite a momentous night tonight in the world. We were very keen to do an event tonight. We tried a couple of people. Neither Hillary nor Donald were free. And that's just as well, because what you're going to get is much, much better than anything that you would get from them. I'll introduce our speaker in a moment, but for those of you who've not been to one of these events before, let me explain how it works. In a moment, Mark will speak about why he thinks that poetry is the person of faith's native language and how it might refresh our relationships with God. Pretty big subjects. After he's spoken, we will have plenty of time for your questions. And your questions are important because this needs to be an interaction. I would be very happy to sit and talk to Mark all evening, just on my own. But it will be much more interesting and empowering and I think involving for you if we can have your questions, and I will put them to him. So if you have a question for Mark, please write it on the back of your program and hold it up, and it will be collected. We'll collect questions until about 7.30. We would ask you, though, to keep them brief and legible. So think Japanese haiku rather than epic narrative. We're also taking questions via Twitter using the hashtag splash of words. If you would like to send us your question through your mobile, just type in the question with the hashtag sign, splash of words, and we will find it. And it does help if you are following us on Twitter if you want to do that. And our Twitter feed is at St. Paul's Learning at St. Paul's Learning. The details are on your program. Uh, your questions will be magicked up to me on the laptop here, and I'll put as many to mark as I can. We will end at 8 o'clock, and there's a bookstall just here where you can buy Mark's books, and he's kindly said that he will sign copies as well. Now it gives me huge pleasure, I'd normally say at this point to introduce Mark, he needs no introduction. I just realized actually that I haven't told you who I am, which is a little bit of a drawback. Um, so just in case you want to address your questions to me directly, my name's Andrew, I'm Andrew Carwood and I'm the Director of Music here at St Paul's. Mark, however, is the Canon Chancellor. Uh, that means he gets to oversee all the most interesting stuff in the cathedral, except the music, of course. He gets the arts program and all of the learning and outreach work, including theology, ethics, and the schools and families programs. He is a man of wide interests. Poetry comes very high on that list. And before he came to St. Paul's, he was rector of St. Paul's Covent Garden, called the Actors' Church, and he remains passionate about theatre. Mark is profoundly committed to human rights and is a trustee of liberty 
a patron of the Tell Mama project, which supports victims of anti-Muslim hate crime, and an ambassador for the charity Stop Hate UK, working to reduce hate crimes of all sorts. He's also a great writer and an extraordinary preacher. As you might imagine, I get the chance to listen to a lot of sermons, and uh, the choristers are often very vocal in what they think about them. Uh, the gentleman sitting on my right is one of the best that you will ever hear. He's normally in my chair in front of the computer for these events, and one of the most frequent comments we've had is, when are we going to hear a little bit more from the chairman? So tonight is the night with the publication of his new book, The Splash of Words. This book has had a long maturing. It's the fruit of many years of reading, thinking, prayer, and deep engagement with what really matters to people inside and outside the church. Rowan Williams has called it a very moving book, opening all kinds of doors into a more compassionate, more truthful understanding. I can't welcome Mark because he is in his home and we love him for being here, but I would ask you now to put your hands together to welcome him to this podium to begin his presentation. Well, thank you, Andrew, very much indeed. It uh, feels very odd standing here and not uh, sitting there, and a lot more precarious, I can tell you. But here goes, and as always at this stage in the evening, I take comfort in the words of uh, Quentin Crisp. If at first you don't succeed, failure may be your style. Actually, I was, at, I was at a conference the other day when uh, one of the speakers began by saying, I don't know uh, many of you here tonight, so I've asked for a list of you all broken down by age and sex. But, he said, as I look at you all now, I can see that most of you have been broken down by age and sex. Well, I would, of course, never be so rude. I'm here to talk about poetry and faith. To my mind, two inseparable topics. But I know that the word poetry is scary for a lot of people because it can have very bad memories of boredom or humiliation at school as you try to understand or recite a poem. And sometimes then maybe you've tried to come back to poetry in later life but don't quite know where to start, and when you did, it all seemed pretty incomprehensible. Too much work for too little result. There's even a word, metrophobia, the fear of poetry. Not fear of London transport, the fear of poetry. Or maybe Blackadder gets nearer the truth. Baldrick I'd rather French kiss a skunk than read your poetry. <laughs> I remember the day, though, 
I realized my life needed more poetry in it. I went to hear Wendy Cope read her poems. She'd brought out a, a new collection. And towards the end, she read this short poem called Names. It's written about her grandmother. She was Eliza for a few weeks when she was a baby. Eliza Lily. Soon, it changed to Lil. Later, she was Miss Steward in the baker's shop. And then, my love, my darling, mother. Widowed at 30, she went back to work as Mrs. Hand. Her daughter grew up, married, and gave birth. Now she was Nana. Everybody calls me Nana, she would say to visitors. And so they did. Friends, tradesmen, the doctor. In the geriatric ward, they used the patient's Christian names. Lil, we said or Nana, but it wasn't in her file, and for those last bewildered weeks, she was Eliza once again. I listened to those few simple lines that capture the fragile life cycle of a woman that you feel tender towards after just 107 words, and I found I was crying. Preachers out there, memo to self, you can do extraordinary things with just 107 words. You don't always need 107 points or minutes, just saying. Not all poems make you cry, of course, far from it. But what became clear to me that day and since then is that when we talk about poetry, we are talking about a soul language, a way of crafting words that distills our experience into what feels like a purer truth. This is, I think, what the Irish poet Michael Longley meant when he was asked where do you get all your poems from? The words, the images, where do they all come from? And he replied, if I knew where poems came from, I'd go and live there. I've called my new book The Splash of Words because a good poem, it seems to me, is like the pebble that you throw onto the lake. There's that immediate splash the splash, by the way, was the silence in this cathedral when I finished the Wendy Cope poem. That was the splash. And then the poem begins its work. The ripples, as it were, set out towards your shore. And then they begin to lap, to wash over the shores of your understanding, shifting sands, unsettling hard stones. 
And if you're a person like me who thinks theology is really a sort of beachcombing exercise, then the work of a poem brings things onto your shore that you might want to cherish and take home with you. In the church, we often like to think we're rather good with language, a bit cool, a bit hip even. This isn't always so. I once saw a very big poster outside a rather gloomy North London church that simply asked passing shoppers, tired of sin, (laughs) then come in. (laughs) To which someone had scribbled at the bottom, but if not, telephone 642. (laughs) But I don't need to tell you that for a person of faith, language matters. And whereas we can get very obsessed about being relevant, it seems to me that what we should be striving for is not relevance so much as resonance. And thinking through the difference between the two is an important task. I'm originally from Shropshire. Shropshire born, Shropshire bred, strong in the body, thick in the head. I was brought up by my grandparents. And there are a lot of sheep in Shropshire, and at the bottom of my grandparents' garden about two years ago, I saw Tom, who is uh, in his 80s now, and he's a Shropshire shepherd. And the day I saw him, he was carrying his shepherd's crook. So I called him over, and I joked that my boss back here walks around carrying something rather similar, and I asked him, I said, do you really use it to haul in the naughty sheep? Is that what it's used for? And he laughed, and he said, no, Mark, I'll tell you what this is really good for. He said, I stick it into the ground so deep that I can hold on to it and keep myself so still that eventually the sheep learn to trust me. I can't tell you how I've wanted to preach at a bishop's consecration service (laughs) ever since. But it's an important image, not only for bishops, but for all Christians and people of faith, drawing on the deeper place, nearer the humus, the root of our word humility, so that we can be so still, so centered, that we might be found worthy of some trust. And for this, we're going to need a language that is worthy of that vocation. And I believe that language will be poetic. But let's just go back to the problem I started with for a moment, because by now you might be feeling, okay, I can see where this is going, but I'm still stuck on the poetry thing. I don't get it. And if that's how you're thinking, then let me take you Uh, on a little trip that I mention in the book. We're going on a little trip to Belgium. Consider the way you'd be thinking now if we were planning a trip to Belgium. You would try to learn a few phrases or read a bit of Belgian history. You'd go uh, online, find the flea markets, or buy a guidebook for the restaurants and so on. 
The important thing is that you know that when you get to Belgium, at some point, you're going to be confused, occasionally at a loss. And you would accept that confusion as part of the experience. It's part of the fun. What you wouldn't do is become paralyzed with anxiety because you don't speak fluent Flemish or convinced that to really get Belgium, you need to know all its bylaws or understand why their most famous public statue is a boy peeing in a fountain. You'd probably say, you know, that's what it's like here. And if I stay around long enough, maybe it will begin to make some sense. Well, poetry is best thought of in a similar way. The art form is enormous and it's perplexing, but you can amble across the landscape, you can be curious, you can take time. Like all foreign countries, poetry has got its own customs and rules, but you, you haven't got to remember them all to make the trip worthwhile. What you do need is motivation to book the tickets, and you need patience once you've started the journey. But the point is that no matter how much you prepared for this trip, you know that you are going to be confused, and that's part of the exhilaration. Poetry means that you will be confused. This is language, but not as we know it. And you are allowed, not always, to like it. Because here is the spiritual point. Difficulty can be an important thing. Difficulty can be important in a life. Think back on your own lives and you will probably see that the most important times are the difficult ones. As in life, so perhaps in a language for life. Many of you here I know will know Mary Oliver's poems. And here's a poem she wrote and published just two years ago, which I think makes this point. It's called, If I Wanted a Boat. I would want a boat, if I wanted a boat, that bounded hard on the waves, that didn't know starboard from port and wouldn't learn, that welcomed dolphins and headed straight for the whales, that when rocks were close would slide in for a touch or two, that wouldn't keep land in sight and went fast, that leapt into the spray. What kind of life is it always to plan and do, to promise and finish, to wish for the near and the safe? Yes, by the heavens, if I wanted a boat, I would want a boat I couldn't steer. A quick exercise. If I said to you now, here is the news. You'd probably all sit up and expect to hear some facts of the day, probably about the US, events that have occurred. 
and some commentary on them. But if instead I suddenly said, once upon a time, you'd probably be equally expectant for truth, but you would tune in differently. You'd be able now to receive truth in a different form, story, where meaning is communicated without summarizing it. It's called a story. Now, when you walked into this cathedral or when you walk into a church or a place of worship, how have you tuned in? Have you got your newsroom BBC ears on? Have you walked into some Google temple for facts? Or have you walked into a poem? Have you walked into this space that is celebrating the fact that God could never be the object of our knowledge, but is always the cause of our wonder. You see, to walk in with expectations of the one and to hear the other might mean you miss something really important. It might mean you think the whole thing's implausible, actually. Category errors are happening, and they frustrate but certainly, when you come to a Christian service, you have walked into poetry in motion. You stand and sing a poem. It's called a hymn or a worship song. Then you'll hear an ancient poem. We call it a psalm. Then there are prayers full of images, metaphors, similes. They all come hurtling along. I'll mention scripture in a moment. But if you're a high church cleric or a charismatic singer... Even your gestures become poetic. Arms go into the vocative as a language is sought to praise the mystery, the reality of God. And you see, when a human being falls in love, and indeed many of you at the moment, as I look at you now, may actually be in love. I see one or two flushed faces, even from this distance. But when we fall in love we always look for a language that will express what we feel and we will go to every length to describe how we feel, how the loved one is to us. We all become poets when we're in love because we're scurrying around trying to do justice to the reality of who we are in relation to the one we love. We take language to the gym make it do a workout to get a bit fitter for the purpose. Poetry is the language of the lover. It is the language of love. And that simply is why it must be the language of the church, the language of faith. As we scurry around trying to do some justice with our words to the truth of God, to the truth of ourselves, when you're in love, truth is far too important to be literalistic with. Now, just in case you think this is all a bit Radio 4-ish, a little too sort of, I wandered lonely as a canon, let's just remember for a moment the ancient traditions of the great world faiths and the place poetry has there. The earliest sacred texts, those of Hinduism, 
the Vedas are, in effect, thousands of poems. And then the uh, Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita, or the Song of God, composed in verse. In China, the classic Tao was written poetically in the 6th century BC. And the opening verse, of course, referring to the gate to all mystery. Then the Hebrew Bible, or the Old Testament, is full of poetic exploration. The Psalms, of course, the noble language of Job, the imagery of the Song of Songs, the riddles of the Proverbs, and then all those prophets warning people what they've turned into. They do that, by the way, they give hope, not by some prosaic plans, some strategy paper, they do it through poetic vision and hope, calling people back. I'll come back to the Gospels in a second, but let's just jump to the Quran, where God is the poetic author of a text that is so beautiful that Muslims have developed chant styles for reciting it. Listen to its much-repeated line that has become the key statement of Islam's shahada, or confession of faith, um, in the Arabic, it transliterates, there is no God but God, becomes la ilaha illa Allah. Double consonants, eel, with the open ah vowels. Give it the rhythm and emphasis. It is for translating into your life. And in all these spiritual tra traditions, truth is expressed through poetry for the faithful. It isn't just a better way of saying it. Truth is found in poetic form. Now, the Christian Gospels are not so obviously poetic until you study them very closely. You then see that the writers of the Gospels had an artistry about them. But then, at the heart of those Gospels is the persistently figurative preaching and teaching of Jesus himself. Jesus always taking people, as it were, on a trip to Belgium, leaving people often wondering, it says in the gospel, what on earth he meant. And yet they were intrigued and drawn by this parabolic language that always sort of hovered over them rather than came into land easily. I don't think Jesus would have scored that high in a seminary preaching class because there were rarely three easy points in easy summary. Jesus was poetic. The good Samaritan never existed, nor did the prodigal son. There was no Lazarus at the gate or woman who lost a coin. Jesus made them up. He was a verbal artist. He used similes and metaphors and riddles. His stories were not designed, you see, to make easy sense. They were designed to make you, to remake you via a little bit of difficulty. And maybe for this reason, the Christian creeds found it difficult to make very succinct reference to his teachings. When Andrew and I go to even song here, we will hear the Apostles' Creed. We will hear every night Jesus was born, suffered, died, and rose again. The thing is, actually, there was something in between. He taught. 
Now, I know there's a, a historical and a political purpose lying behind the writing of the creeds, but it is a little bit odd not to make any reference to these teachings, but perhaps they're too difficult to summarize. Perhaps they defy easy dogma. Some scholars think, by the way, that Jesus' teaching actually um, was conveyed in a four-beat rhythm with lots of uh, alliteration and assonance. What we do know is that when he finished his poetry, as that splash took place next to the sea or next to the fireplace, he asked the people who were following, have you got the ears to hear? Then hear. Might that be, have you tuned in right? Because this isn't the news. This is the good news. And language has to go into a state of emergency to help you get into the kingdom. The great Sufi poet Hafiz described it as pulling out the chair beneath your mind and watching yourself fall on God. So if you look at the heartland of the world's faiths and the heartland of my own, the Christian way, then there is one conclusion, it seems to me. God is a poet. This is not a new uh, conclusion, especially here in St. Paul's. The former dean, the dean here in the early 17th century, John Donne, having read the Bible, told God what was now evident to him. Thou art a figurative a metaphorical God in whose words there is such a height of figures, such voyages, such peregrinations to fetch remote and precious metaphors, such curtains of allegories, such high heavens of hyperboles, so harmonious elocutions as all profane authors seem of the seed of the serpent that creeps. But thou, God, art the dove that flies. Wonderful, done prose. God is a poet. The tragedy is that the troubles begin when people of faith become cursed with a literalism. We simmer down the richness, the ambiguities, the resonances into something more black and white. And then it's very easy to weaponize biblical bullets that we fire off at one another. Nothing true, though, said Marilyn Robinson, will ever be said about God from a defensive posture. But sadly, when we decide to control the poetry, to decide what its one meaning must be, then we easily set ourselves up against the other insights and responses and the language that has danced around the divine flame becomes deadened and cheap like so much other language at the moment. To put it slightly provocatively in the words of my poet uh, friend, Padraig O'Tuma, whatever Jesus of Nazareth's death means... It doesn't mean something that can be written on a fridge magnet. Language is sacramental. It's about beginnings, not ends. 
God's never a word for a bumper sticker. The early theologian, John Chrysostom, said that when we read the scriptures, we shouldn't hammer away at a word or a phrase. We should read them, he says, always as if they're a letter from a friend. Read always the love between the lines. And any interpretation of scripture where you cannot hear the love between the lines isn't one to pursue for long. And having that poetic ear helps you read the love between the lines, yes, of the scriptures, but also of your life. And that's what I want to finish with. What does poetry have to do with my life, with my discipleship, with my faith? Let me try to get to the heart of my belief. I believe that God has given everyone here a great gift. It is called your being. And we're all asked to give one gift back in return. It's called our becoming, who we become in our lives. Put it another way, God loves you just as you are, no doubt. But he loves you so much, he doesn't want you to stay like that. So we need a language for our faith that's not so much about information as about formation, a language that's helping us become. We need, and I believe the teachings of Jesus are this, a language that doesn't set out to answer all our questions. How convenient is that? It's a language that questions all your answers. We need a language that enlarges the heart and the mind and the humane. What we're more used to is prose. Endless pages of lines, relentless language, stops with a small dot, begins with a big letter, and off it goes again. It travels with you. This is prosaic. Poetry does not chug like that. Words have been placed into relationships we're not used to them being in. They're surrounded by spaces and gaps appear. Dashes pop up. Sometimes punctuations disappeared completely. Type an Emily Dickinson poem in your computer and watch your autocorrect explode. Poetry doesn't have a single view in mind. It has multiple meanings on the go. Here, truth is rich in connectivity. It's riotously vivid. Each word of the poem has also been listened to for its sounds, its poise and pounce. And reading poetry aloud will help you hear the words again. We forget, by the way, that um, uh, melody and meaning, something that Andrew knows a lot about, are often caught up in their communication. Uh, if I said to you, hurry up or slow down, you would hear how the meaning and the sound of those words uh, come together. And we also forget, although poetry can feel difficult and rather unnatural, actually there is something very natural to rhythms, uh, as poetry reminds us. For instance, from the day you were born to the day you die, you have a little rhythm going on in you all the time. It's a ti-tum, ti-tum, ti-tum. 
poets call it an iamb. It's a short stress, long stress, titum, titum, titum. Your breath is uh, pretty essential to you while you're alive as well. So take one breath. <gasps> How many titums can you get into it? Titum, 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 titum. Five. This is iambic pentameter. It is, of course, the basic, basic rhythmic line structure of so much English poetry. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Or perhaps today, uh, which is the anniversary of the death of Milton, of man's first disobedience and the fruit. Iambic pentameter, taking your heartbeat and your breath and making you one in rhythm and sound. So, poetry, it's not an easy running river. It's not a quick read. It is a fountain. It's a source from which you draw patiently. You've heard of creative writing. This is creative reading. There's no quick clarity. There's no seductive, easy answers. There's no one meaning to be had, no conclusive evidence that the Supreme Court are going to give. Get a group of people together talking about a poem, and you're going to discover that very quickly. It's a bit like preaching, actually. If I preach to... 60 people, there are 60 different sermons being heard out there. And not one of them, by the way, is the one I'm giving. <laughs> but as you read a poem, you have to persevere for the meanings that begin to work their way through. And poetry and faith do something very similar. They will challenge your first impressions. So, this is why it seems to me that poems are potentially transformative. And we know this because if you're working to rehabilitate young offenders or if you're trying to give voice to an unspoken grief at a funeral or if you're trying to help children see their world a bit better or if you're trying to stir up adults to protest for change in this world, you will turn to poetry. I was very moved when I was writing this book. I was in the States for three months, and I was there when uh, Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson. And the little shrine that, uh, well, it became a big shrine, that was built up for his memory um, by the Black Lives Matter community there, wrote on an enormous box words in black and gold. They tried to bury us. They didn't know we were seeds. Wonderful line. Uh, I looked into this. It was written by a 1970s Greek poet, Christianopoulos, and it was used by Mexico's indigenous peoples as well in their fight for freedom. Here is a one line of poem being utilized for protest through very different communities, passed on as it were. They tried to bury us. They didn't know we were seeds. So my book is not scholarly. It is enthusiastic, very much agreeing with W.H. Auden when he said that a poem should always be much more interesting than anything that can be said about it. Nevertheless, I look at some poems from my life of faith, 
and I try to share something of what I encounter there, the ripples, as it were, that have headed for my shore. And the poets I've chosen are really very varied, with different beliefs, different times, range of subjects. You all know some of them, um, and I'll read a couple to you perhaps in our conversation. George Herbert's there, of course, John Donne, naturally, Dullan Thomas, but also people you may not know, the wonderful Jen Hadfield, who is writing at the moment in the Shetlands, or Liz Berry uh, from the Black Country, or the present Poet Laureate's poem is there about prayer. I hope people will find a real variety there, but feel something always of that movement, the formation that disturbs our surfaces when we read them. The mystic Meister Eckhart once said that God is like a person hiding in the dark who occasionally coughs and gives himself away. Poetry, I think, is where I hear the cough, where my own snoring through life is interrupted, where the splash makes me jump and freshens me and puzzles me just like those words, follow me. Writing this book was my way of trying to celebrate the truth that I have come to believe very deeply, that God is in this world as poetry is in the poem. So, buy that ticket to Belgium and enjoy. Thank you for listening. Well, thank you very much, Mark. Um, if you haven't heard Mark before, you will um, immediately understand uh, the clarity of thought, the uh, use of language, uh, and the breadth of his knowledge and faith, and it's something which I find exceptionally inspiring. Uh, we want you to engage with this, so please do write your questions down. I have some here already, but we'd like to get in as many as we can. It's your moment to interact uh, with us up on the stage. Remember, if you're tweeting, if you're using Twitter, you need the hashtag splash of words at St. Paul's Learning is the, uh, the thing to follow. Uh, or write on your programs, hold them up, and there are people around who will come and collect them. Mark, I'm going to um, ask a question of my own. It's a very simple one, uh, just to start off with, to get the ball rolling, which is that there is so much poetry. How on earth uh, did you choose the poems that you've used? Were you surrounded by paper for months <laughs> and months trying to work out what to put in and what not to? Um, the answer to that is really easy, selfishly. Um, I simply chose poems that at some point in my life had meant something to me or which I've discovered quite recently and the ripples were very, very um, discernible in me. Uh, when I read it now, I'm really struck by the poets that aren't in it. Uh, and, of course, one or two people have said, hmm, volume two. Um, 
<laughs> frightening thought. But, I mean, when I read it, you know, Eliot isn't in it. Um, uh, Milton isn't in it. I mean, lots of people. Philip Larkin isn't in it, which really surprises me. Philip Larkin was probably the first poet that really stirred me up at school. Um, but I, I, just, I just remembered the poems that have stayed with me and the poems that I would want with me quite often in life, and, and there they are. There's about, there's about 30, 35 of them. Yeah. Thank you. Um, now, I've got a question here, um, which I think is quite interesting. I just need to go up a little bit. Um, there we go. Um, I've got a question here. It says, if the church took poetry to heart as its language, mm -hmm. what would change... Well, of course, the poetry of the church is there already. It's just that quite often we forget it. Um, I mean, you, I'm sure, have heard clergy, and I will be one of them, use some of the most beautiful language, <laughs> poetic language, as if we're reading, you know, from a sort of uh, recipe. Uh, we go on to autopilot, and everything sounds rather dulled and prosaic. The poetry is there quite often, but we, we, we've curdled it into something rather rigid and, and, uh, and cliched almost. If we could revitalize our sense of the poetic and celebrate it, I think we would be a lot more generous with one another about each other's hearings of, of faith. We would not be so perturbed when your interpretation is not in dispute with mine, but contributes to mine. So we, we, we put them together. Because that's what happens in poetry groups when you read a poet. You think, oh, yes, I, I haven't seen that. I haven't heard that. But in the church, of course, we tend to see things a little bit more black and white. And, and we sit in round rooms where one's over here, one's over there, and we battle it out. But a poem is sort of saying, hold on. Uh, perhaps there's another way of seeing truth as a little bit more connected and uh, that you're all adding to the truth rather than subtracting. So maybe uh, we would learn to be a little bit more generous and maybe a little bit more uh, humble with one another. So do we have to be quite brave to accept the um, instability that poetry can give? Because if you're, in a, yes. if you're a, a part of a group or as an individual and you're looking for certainty or looking for answers, and there are many people... Yes. looking for that. Yes. Do we have to be quite brave in ourselves to be able to take on everything that poetry can allow us to think? I think you need to be brave in that you need to be patient. And so much in our culture today is asking us not to be that. Everything is quick, uh, easy, at the click of a finger, you know, even our eating habits, our, our loving habits, everything is, is quick and easy and, and disposable. Poetry is saying, wait a minute, um, let's distill here. Let's see what matters. And, and to do that, we're going to have to be patient. And that's quite a brave thing to be today. Yes. It is, it is I agree. Um, I've got another one here, um, a very practical one. Mm. Uh, it says, can you recommend a way to practice reading poetry as a spiritual practice? I don't know where to start, exclamation mark. Oh, I do. Okay. By good. a very good book. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, where do you start? Well, you, you, you start by 
being brave enough <laughs> to pick up the poem to, a bit like Jesus talking, how, how should you pray? You know, close the door. Maybe even, and people, if they hear you, you know, might think you're a bit loony, but, but speak the poem aloud to yourself. Hear it, hear it. Um, and spend time with it. Um, let's see what happens. A, a lot of people uh, wouldn't say to you, I don't think, would they, uh, with music, when they hear a piece of music, what did that mean? <laughs> that would be a rather peculiar question to ask a musician. You would say, just encounter it, just see what happens. And, and I would say the same about a poem. Don't ask, what, what does it mean, as if there's one meaning. Just enjoy the encounter, enjoy the difficulty. Um, and don't just think, you know, that because it, nothing happened in that one little sitting, therefore everything's finished. Return to it, return to it. I mean, that's what the beauty is, I think, of the Christian liturgy is it's poetry we return to, we return to each and every week, each and every celebration, and its natural translation should be in the lives we, we then lead. And it's the same with spending time with a poem. Mm. It, it reminds me of a rather sort of monastic approach yes. to the sort of cycle of prayer and yes. silence, which people keep telling us we need now, but which we seem increasingly good at avoiding. Yes. Um, do you write poetry yourself? No, no I'm, I think I'm too perfectionist. I'm one of those people that tries and write the first line, and I think that's really awful. Um, and then I sort of give up. I think I, I am, because I'm a natural reader, I, I, I love encountering the poetry that I, you know, somebody else has put before me. Um, I suppose if I have a poetry in me, it finds its expression in my preaching, in the language when I speak now. Or that, some people would say that's where I get poetic. <laughs> but I don't write poems, no. No, well, I understand that. I, people ask me if I write music, and I absolutely can't. Mm. Absolutely hopeless. Mm -hmm. I have tried. It's not, I, I would offer to sell you some, but nobody would want it. Um, <laughs> It's, uh, I've got, uh, uh, I'm just looking at this question here, which is sort of, sort of back, just going back a stage from where we were. It says, how do you suggest we make time for poetry in our lives? And this is, in a sense, this isn't a question just about poetry. I yes. think it's about how do we make time. Yes, indeed. Generally. Yes. Um, because I, I mean, I think where I come from on poetry is that I'm, uh, I'm, I, like, I adore poetry. I get a bit nervous with uh, some very modern poetry. Mm -hmm. and, and as you say, you have to be patient and you have to accept the fact that sometimes it, it isn't obvious. But yep. how do we, we prioritise to make that time? Well, I think like you prioritise to do anything that matters. Uh, at some point, you have to remind yourself you have a will. <laughs> Something I think we forget today. Mm -hmm. you, know, you have a will. You can make decisions. And if you're going to say, you know, I'm going to do that dance class on a Monday uh, and it's going to take one hour of my time and I'm going to do it, or I'm going to go to Weight Watchers or whatever it is, you've got to say to yourself, actually, I'm going to spend 20 minutes in my morning or perhaps when I'm travelling into work uh, with the poem. That's why I think, do you remember the poetry on the underground? Mm. Yes. Uh, that was really good because they're there were people looking bored as hell, as Eliot would say, you know, distracted from distraction by distraction uh, in this twittering world, as he put it. 
all sitting there on the tubes, and there were poems literally hovering above their heads, and they could spend some time with it. I thought it was a very, very clever and helpful uh, thing to do. But you just have to, you have to be disciplined. I've got sort of three questions here, which I think I want to tie together. Um, it says, why, uh, I'll read the first one, and then I'll just feed into it a, mm. a little bit. Why is poetry the language of faith mm. more than other fictional genres, ah, yeah. uh, e.g. novels or short stories? Yeah. I, mean, I mean, prose, I suppose. Yeah. Particularly. Yeah. That's another thing which comes on about um, why poetry should be more effective than prose. I know you've talked about yeah. this a yeah, little yeah. bit. Um, and, uh, yes, where's the other one? It's just moved up here slightly. Um, oh, that's right. Yes, it talks about um, the uh, poetry is um, how poetry brings out the musical qualities of language. So I, for me, those are all sort of slightly tied mm. up. Mm. Well, narrative is hugely important, of course, to a person of faith, but particularly for a Christian, because, you know, the narrative of faith is being told in story. So I, I wouldn't make, want to make a huge division between the poetry uh, the, in the sort of natural poetic form and the story because there are so many overlaps in what I'm trying to say about and not over-defining. Uh, nevertheless, um, I think sometimes what we can do with stories is what we can do with uh, poetry is sort of make them into stone and, and start literalising them. We deaden them. That's when poetry gets dull and boring is when we you know, we sort of literalize it and make it. And we do the same with our stories of faith, I think. Um, so, like Kierkegaard, the Danish theologian, I lived in Denmark, please note I know how to say his name, uh, Kierkegaard, it means churchyard. And uh, he said that the, the thing that a preacher should do is help people defamiliarize themselves with the Christian stories, with the Bible stories. So... Um, we, we think we know them. So we listen to it and we go, oh yeah, I know what's coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he binds up his wounds. Yeah, and he gives them money. Yeah, we know it. How do you defamiliarize yourself so that that story actually really hits your heart again? And that is one of the roles of the preacher, to defamiliarize yourself. And uh, I think Alec McCowan did this beautifully. With, do you remember he, he learned the whole gospel of St. Mark and he toured around um, churches and theatres reciting the whole Gospel of St. Mark. And uh, it was so powerful because you were reintroduced to the narrative, the story at the heart of our faith again. It, it was a bit weird because we had to break off for a chalk ice just after the Transfiguration. Um, but, but people were uncomfortable when Jesus was talking about money. You know, oh, when's he talking about sex? Actually, he doesn't very often. He does talk about money. Mm. And it was a wonderful defamiliarization. So the stories uh, um, and the narratives, I think, are poetic, but quite often they're, they're presented and portrayed as being something other. Do you think poetry has a way of um, clouding our thoughts so that we have to <laughs> search harder for the answers, whereas prose... Well, you talked about this a little bit. Whereas prose can be perhaps a little more obvious. And I wonder how that feels to a person who might be looking for answers or to a system of belief which is based more on accountancy 
um, rather than you've done such and such wrong, if yes. you do such and such right, yes. it sort of makes it okay. Those are definites, aren't they? Yes. Is there defin are there definites in poetry? Or does it, uh, is there clouding? And well, the definite is the poem. That is the definite. And as somebody once said, you can never finish a poem. You can only ever abandon it. So you can't exhaust its meanings. You just walk away from it. Uh, and I would say the same about uh, the poetry of Christian faith, is that it is ever regenerating its richness and its uh, resonances in human lives. Uh, it's what, when, when I got ordained, I had to make a promise that I would, you know, try and make fresh in each generation this, this poem. And, uh, uh, and, and when I use the word poem, of course, some people think, oh, it's just a poem. <laughs> mm. And I say, no, no, exactly the opposite. It's so important, it's a poem. Right? It's a bit like when people say, oh, it's only a myth. Uh, and I, again, say, no, exactly the opposite. It, it's so important. That's, it, it is a myth. And R.S. Thomas, that wonderful poet who died in 2000, who was also a Church, of a Church of Wales priest, he said that poetry is that which arrives at the intellect by way of the heart. Mm. I think that's a very beautiful way of summarising it. It arrives at the intellect, but by way of the heart. I've got two slightly churchy questions here, which I'm interested in. Mm. It says, uh, what do you think of the church's determination to modernise the wording in liturgy and to turn its back on the wonderful language of the 1662 Book of Common Prayer mm -hmm. and older versions of the Bible? Because mm -hmm. as a musician, I have a, an interest in this because it's much harder for composers to set the words of the modern liturgy uh, because it is rather more prosaic, whereas the um, language of uh, 1662 and the prayer book is, on the whole, much more musical and, and easier to, to set. So, Yes, and of course, uh, as a sort of speaker of these ancient texts, when you, when you are reciting or praying them, you can, they're much more natural to your breath quite often. There are other yep. beautiful things to, to pray. Um, what do I think? Well, I, I think we... This is going to sound so Anglican on the one hand, but on the other... Um, somebody once said to Robert Runcie, but what would you do if you only had one hand? <laughs> uh, but actually, I believe this. I think we need both. I think we need both. I, I, I wouldn't want to get rid of the uh, 17th century or the 1662 prayer book at all. Uh, and, and it does have its beauty and an Evensong. I mean, if you want poetry and notion, come to Evensong here and, and hear it and hear it. Um, but I would also say that we need, um, we need a contemporary idiom that doesn't mimic the, prayer, the old prayer book, but is, is bold enough to be poetic in its own day. And that, I'm afraid, I don't think we've got. Mm. I think people had more than one eye on the old words. So a lot of the new collects of the, of the old prayer books tried to bring it into the 20th, 21st century, and it doesn't quite work. Mm. I, I, I just think, start again. <laughs> 
but let's keep both. Huh? Yes, because the ASB was quite yes. radically yes. Um, anti-poetry, I yes. would say. <laughs> and common worship, I, I agree, is, um, has gotten, gone a little bit the other way. But, but I do think it's important because, because otherwise we end up with, a, with, a, with a, uh, a form of language in the church which is uh, yeah, without, without music. Yes. Rhythm. And, and by the way, if you never know if it is good or, or not, um, Osbert Sitwell gave you good advice about a poem, and I think it, it's true about liturgy. Uh, poetry, uh, he said, is like fish. Uh, if it's fresh, it's good. If it's stale, it's bad. And if you're unsure, try it out on the cat. <laughs> so uh, you could just try out your liturgy on the cat and see what he makes of it. Okay, thanks for that. Yeah. <laughs> um, it says here, how do you coexist in a church with people who seem to be devoid of poetry? <laughs> <sighs> who could they yeah. mean? Would you, would, <laughs> would you like a few moments? Yeah, I would, that? yes, I, I need to lie down <laughs> with that one. Well, it's, um, yes, challenging, isn't it? Uh, but, you know, I'm devoid of poetry too. Um, it's very easy, isn't it, to, uh, to go native, imitating the world's ways of communicating. I mean, the w one thing I, I was very conscious of, here we are on the, the eve of the election in, in the United States. Just look how language has been used in that debate, how language has been cheapened and weaponized used for untruthful purpose, every which way, every side. It seems to me that a person of faith should never imitate that, not even in its own political um, places. We should be reverencing, being very careful with our language, with each other in community, um, it's, if language is sacramental, and I, I believe it is, we ought to be as careful uh, using this beauty as we are with the water of the font and with the bread and wine on the altar. Um, but the danger is we can start reflecting, going native very quickly to the world's way of not reverencing language. And that's a very dangerous route, it seems to me. And I mean, I'm not the only person who's worried at the moment. Um, one of the things that struck me about the election is I was trying to think of a poem that I could read uh, that would do justice to tonight. I'm not going to read it, but those of you who know Thomas Hardy, he wrote a poem called The Convergence of the Twain. Uh, the thing is about Hardy, people forget that people remember him as a novelist, but actually he really okay. wanted to be a yeah, poet, yeah. and he wrote about 800 poems. Uh, he gave up once he'd made enough money, he, he gave up novels and turned to, to poetry, and, and there's one of them in the book. Uh, and he wrote The Convergence of the Twain, and, and this was a poem where he, he um, depicts the building of the Titanic, the ship, publicly being built with, with pride um, in the, in the uh, dockyard. And there it is, taking its shape and its grandeur, and at the same time, as this was steel was being built out in the dark, cold, something else was being formed, the great iceberg. And these two, uh, he, he looks at these two things being constructed, 
knowing that in providence at some point there will be the convergence of the twain. These two have to meet. And the thing is that when they meet, uh, neither of them is going to (laughs) win. There's just going to need to be rescue. Rescue. And I just think (laughs) Trump and Hillary are the convergence of the twain. Which one's the iceberg? Oh, I couldn't possibly comment. (laughs) Um, No matter who wins this election, they inherit a very uh, divided nation that needs a lot of rescue, Mm. it seems to me. There isn't going to be an easy winner here. And uh, yes, uh, Convergence of the Train might be a poem to read uh, as you're waiting for the election results. You just said you're devoid of poetry. Do you mean that? Because your your preaching, your writing, your speaking is poetic, I would say, mm. it, it, in its use of language. It's it, the, the the thought processes, the mm. the way you express yourself. I would never describe you as someone devoid of poetry. No, I suppose I feel I'm devoid of poetry. Um, yes, I suppose I find it frustrating sometimes that I I can't write poetry as, I, as the poets do. But I think I've just had to say to myself, well, perhaps it will slip out in other ways. Because yeah. I, think, I think it does. Because poetry, I don't think, should just be about poems. Should it? It should be. No. It's, it's, it's broader than that. No. And there is a question here which says, um, do we all have an inner poet waiting yeah. to be released? Yes, I think we do. Um, I think we all have a, a desire to distill. I think we all have a desire to go beyond the surface. Um, If you think about therapy, psychotherapy, a good summary of psychotherapy, it seems to me, is um, by being heard, you hear yourself. So if somebody's hearing you, in that encounter, in that process, you then hear yourself. And I think there's something of that in a poem. We all have that desire to, to go a bit deeper. Uh, and, and it's scary. <laughs> it's a dark place. There's a lot hidden. But I think we have it. And, and therefore, when we find a language or maybe an art form that's music or dance or whatever it is, when we find the one that helps us excavate ourselves, then we use it or we should try to use it for, for our well-being. Uh, and so I do believe that we have that in us. I think that's absolutely, I think that's absolutely right, because I think as human beings we need every bit of help we can get in order to amplify us and let, help us to grow. And that's why I think difficulty is important. Mm. It's rather difficult thing to say, um, but I think difficulty is important because it pushes the boundaries. It makes you uncomfortable. And that's, you know, what, what good things might emerge from the place where you are uncomfortable? That's a it's an important question. Yeah, which, uh, yes, which deserves a lot of thought. A lot of thought. Um, it says here, what poems or poets have helped you in your faith? I know you talked mm. about Philip Larkin as an yes. early yes. inspiration. And I know the book, this is what the book is about, really, um, things which are important to you in your faith. Mm. If you had to pick one, mm. I hate doing this. The choristers asked me to do this. So who's your favourite composer? And I said, mm. well, I can't tell you that, because there are too many too many things which are important but if you had to pick 
a poet, perhaps, who really changed your view? R.S. Thomas, I think. Um, I took a big volume of R.S. Thomas with me uh, to India, uh, and this, <laughs> this book got so bashed about on buses and nudging up against goats on journeys and chickens. And, uh, but I really, it, it, was, it was what I was clinging to at that part, at that time of my life, because uh, he, uh, Seamus Heaney called R.S. Thomas, he said he's a bit like the Clint Eastwood of the soul. <laughs> he's a bit of a loner, he's a bit gruff. He goes places where, you know, others don't. He swings into the saloon <laughs> and everybody looks. Um, and there's something about the rawness and the, the fearlessness of, of facing God. Because I, I believe that in, in R.S. Thomas, God is not to be feared because God is a bastard. He's not out to get you and slap a ticket of sin on you. That's not why we fear God. For Thomas, you fear God because God is real and you're not. And he has to sit in empty, silent churches look at, looking at an untenanted cross. He has to wait uh, because actually he's not yet real enough to see God. Um, and that insight really stays with me. Uh, and um, I find very poignant. Uh, so R.S. Thomas probably, but then, you know, I'm, I will very quickly be pointing to George Herbert and, uh, and Dunn and, and Eliot and uh, others. And a lot of contemporary poets. There's quite a lot of contemporary mm. poets in there. And I've had a question here about, um, it's rather sort of topical for this uh, the time in which we find ourselves, about the First World War. Any, is there any First World War poetry that particularly yes. affects you? Well, I'm a Shropshire boy, as you heard, and of course Wilfred Owen uh, was a Shrewsbury uh, Shropshire boy, and um, so there is an Owen poem in there. Uh, but uh, I think, yes, I think there are some marvellous First World War poets. Um, and a lot of it's very brave poetry. I mean, these were brave soldiers, but they were also brave poets, and in that they gave, they gave voice to truth, which was not popular. No. Um, just around the corner there, we have a, an altar frontal, and you could easily walk by it, thinking it was stitched by rather well-meaning Church of England sewing ladies, and it wasn't. It was stitched by men recovering in Craig Lockhart from shell shock. And they were shaking so much, they were given a needle and learnt slowly again to, to concentrate and focus their, their body into sewing this beautiful ultrafrontal, which was then dedicated here in 1919 after the war ended. I love that frontal because it subverts every expectation you have of those soldiers. Uh, and I think their poems at best also do that uh, in a similar way. I think they're stitching a different truth. Yeah. yeah, which means poetry can say things perhaps that other art forms can't always deal with, or in prose. If you write in prose, if you write a tract or an article, yeah. being that critical, yeah. you'd probably be in much more trouble. Yeah. Um, it's a little bit like William Byrd in the 16th century writing music 
which was, had deeply held Roman Catholic faiths for him as a practicing Catholic in a reformed society. The censors didn't bat an eyelid at his music because it was only music. Yeah. It couldn't, what could it do? Yes. <laughs> you know, it's only poetry. Yes. What can it do? I'm, I'm often struck as well. Um, I was talking about stress earlier and how theology can completely change over one differently stressed word. I'll give you an example. I sit here, like you do, at many ordinations, and from that lectern, one of the candidates to the diaconate will usually read the reading from Isaiah 6, and it always ends, here am I, send me. And the candidate will always say, send me. Because <laughs> they're just about to be ordained, and everybody's like, well, <laughs> what about if we change the stress <laughs> on send, here am I, send me. The theology is completely different there. The self, the, my ministry, my, my God, my, you know, this is all about my personality, has shifted into the mission of God, send me. Right? So don't think that the stress in the way you read the scriptures publicly or liturgy is inconsequential. I think whole worlds shift <laughs> over one possible stress. Um, language matters. Yeah. We, were, we had a little natter this afternoon, didn't we? Mm, it was very, did. very pleasant. And we talked about various things, one of which has just come up here, which is this, how much poetry do you know by heart? <laughs> and do you think we should memorise? Because, of course, that's what a lot of us yeah. uh, did at school. You're not going to ask me, are you? Yes, I want you to <laughs> recite. Um, and also, from, I mean, from my little bit of theatre that I've done, I can always remember the whole of the opening of Twelfth Night, because uh -huh. I did all see no once, and it's, you know, it's in my head, and I every so often repeat it to myself. But it, 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 do you think, I think memory is an important thing. We had, I was saying to Mark, we have a phrase in the singing world that you have to have something in your voice. It has to be in your voice, which means not that you know the notes, but you, it's so part of your body that you can express it properly and express its true emotions and live it. Mm. And do you think there's the same is true for poetry or is it just too, too redolent of school and chores? Uh, I think a lot of people who come back to poetry learn the beauty of, of, of learning something in their mind and so being able to recite it, not to show it off necessarily, but just to, to take it into yourself. And I've had several moments in my ministry where very moving moments of elderly people um, who are losing their memories, mm. who suddenly are able to recite poems and uh, uh, excerpts from their past. Um, and the joy and the relief when words will come naturally again to them, when they're stumbling around to to say something or to remember what happened 10 minutes ago has, has been very moving to see. So I think it, again, I, I, I do think it's an important thing if we can do it. Um, but don't feel bad if you can't. I mean, mm. it's, it's, it, try it out, try it out. Well, and it might feed in, I suppose, to what you were saying before about making time. Yes. Making time, not thinking you have all the answers in one go, but yes. um, allowing, allowing it to happen, maybe you, it goes in. You were asking about poets that matter to my faith. I wonder, 
If, I'll just read, if I may, this poem by George Herbert, which you will all know. And I'll, I'll read it just to show you how a poem has, which I think I could recite if I had to, um, how it now has a completely different meaning for me in some ways because of something that happened in my life. So if I may just read it first, you'll all know it, Love 3. Um, Herbert, as you know, never published English poems in his life, only Latin ones, and um, when he was dying, he bundled them together. He was very meticulous about the order he put the poems in, um, and he sent them to his friend Nicholas Ferrer and said, you know, if you don't think they're worth anything, chuck them on the fire. Uh, and Ferrer, thank goodness, didn't. But this was the last poem in the collection because he wanted love to be the last word, as it, as it must be for the Christian. And so let me just read it, and then if I may, I'll just tell you how it's completely shifted its meaning for me. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful, ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So... I did sit and eat. Wonderful Her Herbert uh, monosyllab uh, monosyllabic end. Uh, God in, in George Herbert speaks in monosyllabics. I did sit and eat. God always talks in, in monosyllabics in Herbert to, to nail in the truth of what he's saying. Um, I, my colleagues here know this story, so please forgive me, but I, I just want to show how it's changed my way of reading this poem. I was brought up by my grandfather, who died when I was 14, and he was in the RAF, and as a boy, he was a bit of a hero to me, but he would never, ever, ever talk to me about what he'd done uh, in the RAF, except once in the car alone, he started to cry. And... Uh, I remember it vividly. You remember your grandfather crying. And he mentioned a word which I remembered called Dresden. And uh, he died when I was 14, and I've read my history since. And um, I now know a little bit. I have his logbook. And I now know that he, he was part of the bombing raid on Dresden. So when I was asked to preach about four years ago in the Frauenkirche that had just been rebuilt in Dresden. He, of course, is very much in my mind. 
And uh, at the end, I got into a taxi to go to the train <coughs> station, and uh, the taxi driver was very chatty and said, have you enjoyed being here? And I said, yes, I've loved it. I've always wanted to come to Dresden. And he said, why have you always wanted to come here? So I took a very deep breath, and I said, well, I was brought up by my grandfather, and I know now that on the 14th of February 1945, he was part of the bombing raid here, and he's been very much in my mind. And he was very quiet, and then he suddenly said, ah, that was the night my mother was killed. And then he pulled the car over and turned the engine off, and I was in the back, and he turned around to me and he said, and now you and I shake hands. And we shook hands, and we didn't say another word. We got to the station, I went to pay, he wouldn't take it. He said, no, no, we will remember this for the rest of our lives. And it's true. I phoned my grandmother from the station, who burst into tears, because she remembers her husband never being able to talk about Dresden. And as I got on the train, this poem came to mind, and I could remember it all. And the line that really just came home was, love took my hand and smiling did reply. And that's what that man did. And I suddenly realized, gosh, Herbert understood that that's what God does. And that man just showed me something of God. And Herbert got there well before me all those years ago. And I will never read this poem again. And that line, love took my hand and smiling did reply without thinking of that taxi driver. Um, and I thank Herbert <laughs> uh, daily for his insights like that into the nature of God. So not a man devoid of poetry then? <laughs> no. no. Um, Mark, it's been wonderful chatting to you, um, but time is marching on, as it always does on these occasions. And I wonder if um, you'd like to close um, with a thought or two. I think you might read mm. um, a passage from, mm. from the book. I thought what I'd do... We have a tradition here, and I'm normally the one who, who asks the speaker to, to give us a final thought, uh, to send us out on our way. I thought what I'd do is I'd just read the last two paragraphs from the book, um, because they say something that I, that I really want to, to express tonight. Um, the, the, the last chapter is a little bit unusual, um, because it's... It's, um, it's, a, it's an Afghanistan poem. It's a lande, and, and landes are unusual in that they're um, very ancient folk poems. Some of them are as old as 1700 BC, uh, but other landes are written today, and so they can often talk about texting. And, uh, so you have these little two-liner folk poems that are used in various parts of uh, Pakistan, Western Pakistan and uh, Eastern Afghanistan. Um, they're 22 syllables long. Um, there's nine in the first line, 13 in the second, and every poem ends with the sound ma or na. 
And these landes are used anonymously, uh, so they're not written down, they're only recited, and women recite them together, almost as a sort of protest against the compliance and invisibility that women often have in the culture, and uh, particularly with the Taliban strongholds. Uh, Landes became very important because here is where women would express their grief about wars that men were raging, about cruelties, about loss. Sometimes they're a bit naughty and, and talk about how awful their husbands are in bed and things like that. But here is where women together didn't write down but recited these ancient or fresh landes to, to uh, as it were, create their identity somehow. And the last poem in the book is a lande, and it was written by a teenage Afghan girl called Rahila Muska, and she lived in Helmand uh, as a Taliban stronghold, and um, her father took her out of school because he was worried that she would be vulnerable to kidnap or rape because education was deemed to be dishonorable by the Taliban. Uh, so she was out of school, but she loved poems. She loved writing them. She loved reciting them. Uh, she loved landes. And uh, the lande I've chosen is one that she recited often on a radio program. And it goes like this. I call your stone. One day you'll look and find I'm gone. If I may, I'll just read the two paragraphs. Rahila liked to listen to poetry programs on the radio and would often phone in to a live chat line run by a women's literary group called Mirman Bahir. Here girls from the provinces could read out their work or talk to other poets, and Rahila was a popular and frequent caller. One day in spring 2010, Rahila phoned in from a hospital bed in Kandahar to say that she'd set herself on fire in anger. Her brothers had beaten her after discovering that she wrote poetry. To many Afghan women, poetry is forbidden because it implies a freedom of will and her brothers were brutal in punishing her. Rahila, with all the resilience and strength that she had shown in her own poems, set herself alight and soon after her phone call on that radio, she died. I find the story of Rahila very moving. I wanted her story to end this book. A teenage girl on the other side of the world to me decides that she is willing to die to witness to the importance of poetry and its celebration of the whole uncensored human person in a whole and uncensored world. It was the language, the creativity, the freedoms of poems that made her feel that self and world when others were trying to forbid her. 
I see in her story too the poet of Galilee nailed to the cross, the man whose words were taken to court and put on trial. And in Rahila and in all who bear the cost of liberating, perplexing, defiant, truthful words in good and dark days, I see the holy God of truth's beauty reflected. I have come to a place in my own life where inspired by poets such as Rahila and the others in this book, I can celebrate the perception that God is in this world as poetry is in the poem and that a life can be worse spent than pursuing the footfalls of this puzzling, transforming intuition. Thank you. 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 Thank you.